In your Bibles, you can turn to Romans, I say three and four here, are uh, the, the, the text of note will be in Romans chapter four. It's a special day of the year for we who are followers of the risen Christ. It's a day when we remember the day that is the very foundation of our faith, the day that is the very foundation of our hope, the day when Jesus arose from the dead. We're going to spend time, both this morning and this evening, considering the nature and the implications of the resurrection. We'll build a foundation this morning that we will build, then we'll lay a foundation, excuse me, this morning that we'll build upon tonight. The foundation of the resurrection today, what it is, why it is, how it is, in order that we might build on it, why it matters so much, not just to those who uh, are, are in need, which is all of us, but then after we've accepted Christ as our Savior, building on that faith through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our efforts this morning are really going to focus around one statement made by the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, of which we're going to spend our time considering, but we'll talk about 3 and 4 as we try to understand a little bit of what Paul is saying here. The statement in question is Romans chapter 4. Oh, there I am, okay. Uh, the final verse of Romans chapter 4, I was in the wrong chapter. Final verse of Romans chapter 4, verse 25, which says this, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised for our justification. Now, unless the who at the beginning of the verse initiates a question, who was raised for our, who was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification, which it does not, then you, you notice that we have jumped directly into the middle of a sentence here. We are in an incomplete sentence, jumping directly into a context that we need to explore if we're going to truly glean from this verse that which we ought to glean from this verse. Who is the who, right? It says who was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justifications. Who is that who? What are these offenses? Why was another delivered for our offenses? That doesn't sound very fair. And how does this secure for us this thing called justification? Paul has answered all of these questions generally in the previous context, with Romans chapter 4 uh, being a culmination of sorts, or really 5 verses 1 and 2 being the culmination of a thought process that Paul has been going through. And as we think through that together, first our efforts, in order to be both clear and thorough, I want to take a moment to step back and remember the historical event which inspires both Paul's writing here in Romans chapter 4 as well as this day of memorial that we have today. So we go to the final days of Christ's time on earth. Jesus has been preaching for what we would believe to be something like three years now. He finds himself in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. One of three primary holidays where Jewish men made a journey to Jerusalem for the observances. Jesus has spent the evening of the Passover with his closest 12 disciples. One of these men, a man named Judas Iscariot, leaves during the feast in order that he might betray Jesus into the hands of the chief priests and scribes, in order that he may betray him into the hands of the spiritual leaders of the day. These spiritual leaders hate Jesus. They hate him for his message. They hate him for his authority. Because this message that he preached, this authority that he claims, was a direct threat to their power and their influence over 
Israel. Jesus then takes the remaining 11 following that supper, following the the Passover supper, and he goes with them into a garden across the Kidron Valley, across the brook, and he goes into the val- uh, to a garden called Gethsemane. He then leaves the disciples there and takes just the inner three, Peter, James, and John, a little bit deeper into the garden, and then he leaves them, and he goes himself deeper still into the garden where he prays to the Father. He is preparing his heart, yielding his heart, aligning his heart, readying himself for what he is about to do. He agonized over the reality of what was about to be asked of him, yielding his will to the will of the Father in heaven. Jesus was then arrested, and he was taken to the chief priests and the scribes for a tribunal. Before the high priest, Jesus was questioned regarding his teachings. They ask him directly whether or not he is the Son of God, and he answers them directly that he is, in fact, the Son of God. The high priest rents his garments. They accuse him of blasphemy. They say, we need here nothing else. He calls himself the Son of God. This is blasphemy. He must be killed. However, they, the Jews, could not do it on their own because they were a vassal state of Rome. They had to get Rome's permission for the death penalty. So they mock him, they spit on him, they strike him, they abuse him. And then when the morning comes, because this had all happened overnight, when the morning comes, they take him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, for trial. These Jewish leaders accuse Jesus of perverting the nation, teaching rebellion against Caesar, teaching that he refused to pay taxes. These were lies. uh, Accusing Jesus of rivaling Caesar himself, saying that he would be king and he would take the throne as if Jesus was trying to inspire some some insurrection. Of course, he was not. So Pilate questions Jesus of these things and finds the accusations to be lacking in essential substance. But the people are very angry. He doesn't really want to deal with Jesus, but the people don't want to let this go and Pilate doesn't want trouble. So, hearing that Jesus was from Galilee, he was born and raised in Galilee, he was a Galilean, he sends him off to Herod, because Galilee is Herod's jurisdiction, and Pilate gets Jesus off of his hands. Herod's very happy to see Jesus. He'd heard about the miracles, he'd heard of all the, the things that Jesus had done, he wanted to see them, he wanted to ask Jesus questions, so he thought, this is great, Jesus is here, he can amuse me now. However, Jesus would not answer. He kept his mouth shut, Herod asked him questions, Jesus would answer none of his questions. Herod quickly gets bored of Jesus, and so he sends him back to Pilate. Pilate doesn't, doesn't get away with this one, he, he ends up back with Pilate. Having failed to pass the problem along to Herod, Pilate is inclined then to release Jesus. He sees nothing in him of uh, of guilt. There's no reason why he should be punished. He wants to release Jesus. The people, however, are vehement. They are angry. They refuse to let him do so. Pilate is under a great deal of pressure here. He does not want that pressure. He does not want riots. He does not want anger. So he says, if letting this man die is going to keep the peace, then I'm going to let this man die. He washes his hands of the whole event, declares he wants no part in Jesus' death, says that he was an innocent man. He wants no part in it. 
but he would allow the Jews to do what they would do with Jesus. The Jews say, fine, his blood is on our hands, just give him to us. We want him crucified. So Jesus is delivered to be crucified. He's nailed to a cross. The cross was a degrading form of torture. It was meant not just to be torture, but shameful torture. As you're hanging high above the earth, everyone is watching you. Everyone is mocking you. It is shameful. It is degrading. It is uh, uh, painful. The outcome being inevitable, a slow and agonizing death. And it's there that we see the realization of the first part of the verse that we're considering today in Romans 4.25. Who was delivered for our offenses. Now we'll come back to what those offenses are and why Jesus had to be delivered when we find our way back into Romans. But that was him being delivered for our offenses. Jesus suffers on the cross so that we read in Luke 23 verses 44 to 46. And it was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the earth. That would be noon, sixth hour of the day. Jewish day goes from 6 a.m. to 6 uh, p.m. So noon would be the sixth hour of the day. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having thus said thus, he gave up the ghost. So Jesus dies. He dies at that 3 p.m., the time of the evening sacrifice. He gives up the ghost. Following Jesus' death, there was a man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible says that he was a man who waited for the kingdom of God. He's a man who loved the Lord. He petitioned Pilate to allow Jesus to be buried in his sepulcher, in his tomb. Petition was granted. Jesus was laid in this tomb. It was carved into a rock. No man had ever been laid, been laid in there before. There Jesus would lay in the tomb until the third day. We move right along to Luke 24, where the Bible says this in verses 1 through 8. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, and as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to, see, uh, to the earth, they, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. So on the third day, the disciples found nothing but an empty tomb. Jesus had risen from the dead as he had promised he would do. And over the next 47 days or so, he would be seen by hundreds of men and women, both there in Jerusalem and then up in Galilee, where he would teach them for, for many days. All of this before he would, be, uh, uh, he would come back to Jerusalem. He would go to the Mount of Olives and he would ascend into heaven, promising that he would come again. That Jesus arose from the dead means that he had conquered death. That Jesus arose from the dead means that he had conquered sin and the sin that brought death into this world. We'll talk more about that soon in our Genesis series, the sin that brought death into this world. But that our Savior rose from the dead is a truth of historical record and eternal significance. And it is that eternal significance that we devote the remainder of our time to 
in Romans chapters 3 and 4. In Romans 3, we do also enter into a context. If I were to uh, give you all of the context, we'd have to go all the way back to Romans chapter 1. Uh, and I don't really have time to do all of that this morning. But we are into the middle of a context of Paul reasoning regarding the need for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. In Romans chapter 1, he spoke of the wrath of God, which rests upon the unbelieving world for their sin. Now, to the most religious people that were the ones reading this, they were a group of people in a church. They were religious people. Paul is writing about the unbelieving world and the wrath of God that is upon them and and, uh, that they are without excuse. And the most religious listeners would read that and they would say, that's right. There's some really bad people out there. I'm glad that God will judge them. But that wasn't Paul's point. Much to the contrary, Paul quotes Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 12, when he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. They are together become unprofitable, excuse me. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Paul calls the reader to step outside of his bubble of looking around at others and comparing himself with others and saying, well, at least I'm better than so-and-so, or at least I am, not, uh, I am more righteous than so-and-so, or at least I don't sin as much as so-and-so, or at least fill in the blank. He calls us outside of that mode of comparison and instead calls us to compare ourselves our obedience, our godliness, and our righteousness to only one person, to God himself. And if I am comparing myself to God, if God is the standard for righteousness, if God is the definition of righteousness, I am not righteous. If God is the definition of godliness, I am not God. I am not righteous. I am not godly. If God is the standard, if perfection, if, if Jesus is the standard of obedience, then I am not obedient. How do you compare to God? If God is the standard, how do you measure up? And it is in this frame of reference that we realize that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none that understand. There is none that seek after God. You are not righteous. I am not righteous. My children are not righteous. Your children are not righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good. Paul goes on to say as much as we continue in verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. When we find in the Old Testament the reality of the law of God. Thou shalt not steal. Shalt not bear false witness. Shalt not covet. Shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto the self any graven image of anything. We look at God's law and we recognize that we have not kept it. We have all lied. We have all lusted. We have all coveted. We have all disobeyed our parents. Honor thy father and mother. 
we have all fallen short. The law says these things that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Well, pastor, you don't understand. I'm a pretty good person. It's not good enough. A pretty good person is not good enough. I try really hard. It's not good enough. I haven't lied in weeks. Not good enough. Haven't lied in years. Not good enough. Not true also. Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law exists to tell us of sin. It cannot justify us because you can't keep it. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God's standard for heaven is righteousness. God's standard for righteousness is himself. And any person... Man, woman, child, that falls short of God's standard for righteousness, which is every person, man, woman, and child, has fallen short of God's standard for heaven. Which means every man is guilty before God. Every man is worthy of death because there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this means every man is guilty before God. And we know that we are not righteous. And in that all have sinned, in that all have come short of the glory of God, to that end, moral living has no power to make me right with God. Moral living has no power to make me righteous. Moral living has no ability to cleanse my heart of its fundamental sinfulness. I might try to be a very good person. That's a wonderful thing. Society will commend you for it. But... You're a sinner before God. You have fallen short of his standard. I can try my best to be as good of a person as I can, but I can never be good enough to be accepted by God because God is perfect and God can accept nothing less than perfection. A holy God cannot accept sin into his presence, into his heaven. Anything less than sinless perfection is unrighteousness. And there is no situation where an unrighteous person can enter into the kingdom of God. And while we might be tempted to think that this is bad news, the disciples even asked Jesus once when Jesus said it is uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And they said, well, then who then can be saved? And we ask that question, who then can be saved? This is bad news. If I am unrighteous, if I have fallen short of God's perfection, if thus have fallen short of righteousness and so have fallen short of heaven, how can I go to heaven? How can I be saved? Is there no hope for me? This is bad news. But it's actually not bad news at all. And the reason why we can say all of these things and say this is not bad news is because of what today represents. Because of the resurrection, it would be bad news that I cannot save myself from my sins. It would be bad news that I am unrighteous and incapable of being good enough for God. That would be very bad news if God demanded that I save myself. But God has not demanded that I save myself. 
our universal sinfulness becomes the great leveler of souls so that every man, every woman, regardless of age, regardless of nationality, regardless of background, whether rich or poor, whether strong or weak, whether intelligent or unintelligent, every single person finds themselves in the exact same place with the exact same problem. No one's social position can help them avoid this problem of sin. No one's personal connections can get them beyond the problem. No one's money, no one's fame can bring them past this problem. You can be as famous or as connected or as wealthy as anyone in the world. It doesn't mean you're not a sinner. So this is the great leveling. In our society, as with all societies throughout history, society is tiered. Certain people don't have to deal with the problems other people have to deal with because they know the right people, uh, because of the environment they've grown up in, because of the amount of money that they have, because of the choices that their parents have made. Thank God our children don't have to deal with a great number of the things that many children in the world have to deal with because the parents in this room have made choices, particularly the choice to stay married, the choice to discipline their children, the choice to invest in their lives. Our children live at a fundamental advantage to other children in that area of life. There are advantages and disadvantages that we all find in life because of various circumstances, some of which are even outside of our control. But we are all on the exact same level playing field as it relates to righteousness and unrighteousness. No one in here in himself is any more righteous than anyone else. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The great universal leveling. And this great leveling means that every single person becomes a candidate for God's mercy should God choose to extend it. And boy, did God choose to extend it, didn't he? And this is what we read in verses 24 to 26 being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, that's a payment or a satisfaction, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him who believeth in Jesus, which believeth in Jesus. In that all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory, all are guilty before God. The sin must be paid for. And this is where Jesus Christ comes in. Jesus was that perfect man, born of a woman like all men, but conceived of the Holy Ghost, God in flesh. He lived a perfect life, he did not sin. He did not fall short of the glory of God, for indeed he is God. And at the end of that perfect life, as we already talked about, he submitted himself to the death of the cross. And on the cross, the Bible says he became the propitiation, satisfaction, payment for our sins. Jesus' death, because he had no sin, was sufficient to pay for your sin and my sin. The sin that I could not pay for, 
he paid for for me. To pay for your own sin means eternity in a place of eternal separation from God, a place of conscious torment that the Bible calls the lake of fire. I am guilty before God. If I have to pay for my own guilt, I pay for it in eternal death. I pay for it in the lake of fire. Not a great option. Well, maybe you could pay for my sin. Well, that would be great if you had no sin of your own, but you have your own sin to pay for. How can you pay for my sin if you have your own sin to pay for? So I can't pay for my own sin, or I can, but it will mean eternity in in hell. You can't pay for my sin because you've got your own sin problem. We've all got a problem. Which is why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Not only to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, but to do for us what we also could not do for anyone else. Jesus died on the cross and he was made the satisfaction, the payment, the propitiation for our sins so that all who put their faith in what Jesus did on the cross will receive the gift of eternal life. That's what verse 26 says, right? To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believeth in Jesus. God declared Christ's righteousness. You and I aren't righteous, but Jesus was. And because Jesus is righteous, And Jesus paid that debt. And Jesus died on the cross. If I stand before God and appeal to Christ's death, his burial and his resurrection as my righteousness, God, I can't be righteous, but Jesus died to pay for my sin. And I believe that and I accept that and I receive that gift. Then I can be justified as well. So that by accepting those As righteous who believe on Jesus, God the Father is both just because his justice... See, God can't just forget about sin. He can't just say, well, you're all sinners. I'm just going to scoot that under the rug and pretend like it's not there. If God did that, he would not be just. And if God is not just, then he is not God. There must be justice. A just God must be just. But how can God both be just and merciful? Well, Jesus is the answer to that. Through Jesus, God can both be just because he still punished sin and he can justify those that believe in Jesus. And we call that belief faith. To accept without exception that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. To commit your heart to the message that you are a sinner, and as a sinner, you cannot save yourself, but that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, that Jesus' death on the cross paid your sin debt so that you can go to heaven. And faith has always been what God has wanted. Paul demonstrates this in Romans 4 through the examples of Abraham and David. We're actually going to talk about that uh, Sunday, not not tonight, but next Sunday night. So so, uh, as we we talk about grace, we're getting more into grace in Hebrews. So come back for that if you want to learn more about grace itself. But Paul demonstrates this in Romans 4 through the examples of Abraham and David. He says in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, 
He hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. Abraham was not justified by works when he left his home and went to the promised land in Genesis 12 through 15. Abraham was justified by faith as he put his full trust in God's promises. Because the man that works for a reward is not... The man who works for a reward is a man who deserves his reward, right? If you work all week and at the end of it receive a paycheck... You deserve that paycheck. You earned it. You exchanged your time and labor for money. Your time and labor put your boss into your debt. And at the end of the week, when he gives you that paycheck, he is giving you that paycheck as a payment for the debt that he owes you for your time and your labor. In the same way, if you work hard and make it into heaven by your work, by your hard work, by your self-discipline, you deserve to go to heaven. God owes you heaven because of your righteousness. Except that no man is righteous. We've already covered that, right? Which means your very best efforts to do anything to get into heaven will fall short. You cannot work your way to heaven. And this is why we need God to give us something apart from ourselves. Something which you did not earn. Because there's no way you can earn it. And instead of working to earn our way to God, we are asked on the basis of Jesus dying for us to accept what Jesus already earned. Our faith is counted for righteousness. Pastor, surely it can't be that easy. Just believe? Well, indeed, it is that easy. Indeed, it is absolutely free, being justified freely by His grace. But does it come at a cost? Well, yeah, it does comes at the cost of yourself. The cost of what we call repentance. Repentance is setting aside anything and everything that you might be tempted to trust in to earn yourself favor with God. Hebrews 6, 1 describes it as repentance from dead works. Rejecting anything and everything you might trust in to earn favor with God, to get yourself to heaven, setting aside your self-righteousness, setting aside your attempts to please God. And following Christ to the cross. Remember what we sang in, that, in Christ the Lord is risen today? Those last, that last phrase? Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. Following Christ to the cross, accepting the gift that he purchased with his own blood. And the Bible says that your faith will be counted for righteousness. That God will see your faith in what Jesus did, your reception of Jesus' finished work on the cross as the gift of salvation. You receive that gift, you accept that gift, God sees that faith, and he says, Christ's righteousness is now your righteousness. But our story doesn't end at the cross, does it? If Christ's story had ended at the cross, he could do nothing for us. If Christ had died and stayed dead, what hope would there be of life for those who followed him to the cross? Romans 4 continues to speak of Abraham and his faith. Trusting in God's promises, being rewarded with God's blessings. And toward the end of the chapter, in regard to God's promises to give him a wife and a child, we read this, and this is where we come to our text for today. Verse 20. 
He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. These things were not written. God did not say that, that, that Abraham was righteous just for Abraham's sake. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, there's the resurrection, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, not only in Abraham's day, but ours as well. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered for our offenses, because you're a sinner, You cannot pay for your own sin. So Jesus died in your place, delivered for your offenses, but then raised from the dead, raised for our justification. See, Jesus' resurrection is God's stamp of approval upon his sacrifice. God would never have allowed a man to rise from the dead if he did not approve of the promises and the truth claims that that man made. And the promise of Jesus is found in the simplicity of John 3.16. Jesus said this while he was alive to Nicodemus in his life. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If God raised the man that said that from the dead, then that man must have been speaking the truth. And in that God raised Jesus from the dead. We can know better than you can know anything. You can see with your eyes or feel with your hands or hear with your ears. You can know that God accepted Jesus' payment for our sins. And if you will but receive him, setting aside anything and everything that you might be trusting in to get yourself to heaven, to make yourself right with God, your own righteousness, your own attempts, to please God and follow Christ to the cross, accept the gift that he purchased with his own blood, by faith, that faith will be counted for righteousness. You will be, by virtue of the payment of Jesus' death and the victory of the resurrection that we commemorate on this day, given eternal life. So that the next two verses in Romans are as follows. I told you that um, Romans, Romans uh, 4.25 is the last, last uh, verse in, in Romans 4, which it is. But remember that the chapters aren't, div- aren't, aren't divinely inspired. The chapter divisions are there for our benefit. But sometimes they can be a bit of a hindrance because they can mean that you're reading in the morning and you stop at Romans 4.25 when really you need a couple more verses to gain the full flavor. I'm going to go back to Romans 4.24 for context. The Bible says this. But also, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, that's righteousness, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, that's the resurrection, who was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification, that's the end of chapter 4, but notice chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. 
and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Where does grace come from? Grace is accessed by faith. Faith in what? In the Savior who was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. For those who walk this path of faith, who believe on the one who was delivered for our offenses, who was raised for our justification, we are given peace with God. Peace is something that's getting harder to come by these days. Not just peace in the world. Yeah, that's, that's not really happening right now. Not just peace in our streets and in our society. We are a deeply divided, angry, uh, contentious society. There is no real peace in our society. There is no real peace in this world. But is there peace in your heart? Is there peace between you and God? Are you right with your God? Access by faith into grace. That's where that peace comes from. Wherein then we stand. Do you have that? Do you have peace with God? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Do you have salvation? Do you stand in that grace? Grace is a free gift. Again, we'll talk more about that next Sunday night. Not of works, not of merit, not of worth, not of wealth. If these were the conditions of the gift, then it wouldn't be free because gifts with conditions aren't gifts. It's a bartering system. If I give you a gift and you're obligated to give something back to me, all we've done is exchanged. A gift, by definition, is without obligation, without payment. Grace is unmerited favor. Being given something I do not deserve, I cannot deserve. That's why it's grace. It's not of works, it's not of merit, it's not of worth, lest any man should boast. The gift of God through our Lord Jesus Christ He who was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. So on this day, we remember the grace of God that is the foundation for our hope of heaven. And we remember that this grace was purchased at the highest of costs. It costs nothing for you, save yourself. It costs nothing of you, save that you would humble yourself, that you would submit yourself to the cross. But it cost Christ everything, didn't it? But what does this remembrance mean to you? Well, there are two different groups of people in here, and it will mean two very different things for those two different groups. There's the group that has never received that grace. Maybe you've been a very religious person. You've been a very moral person. You've done a lot of good things in your life. But maybe you've been trusting in those things to be the things by which you expected God to let you into heaven. That if you were ever to be asked the question, are you sure you're going to heaven? Maybe you'd say yes. Maybe you'd say maybe. Maybe you'd say, I don't know. But if I asked the question, how would you get to heaven? You'd say, well, I'm going to try to be a good enough person. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to make sure that I've... I've, confessed my sins or I'm going to be sure that I have um, done as m- more good things than bad things. I'm going to be sure that I've been a relatively good person. I'm going to be sure that I've gone to church some. Uh, maybe you're going to say that you've been baptized, whatever it might be. But notice that within our text today, none of those things were conditions of salvation. Not going to church, not giving money to church, not being baptized, not being a good person. As a matter of fact, our text tells us you aren't one of those. And you can't be one of those. 
But though you've been a moral person or you've tried hard or whatever it might be, you've never accepted Christ Jesus as your Savior. You have never humbled yourself before the cross and believed on Jesus, accepted the gift of what Jesus did for you that you could not do for yourself. You've never given of yourself. And perhaps today you realize that you've never accepted that gift, that you've never chosen to follow Christ. Would you make today that day that you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, receive the gift of eternal life, acknowledge that you are a sinner, acknowledge that you cannot save yourself, acknowledge that there's nothing that you can do to earn your way, to work your way, to deserve your way into heaven or to deserve this gift. Humble yourself enough to acknowledge that Jesus paid for it and you need him. You need his righteousness to get you to heaven. You need his righteousness to earn for you peace with God because you cannot have it in yourself. And perhaps you know you need this, but you need more guidance. Pastor, I have some questions. Pastor, what you said doesn't quite make sense to me. Pastor, I've learned something else. Uh, I've understood it in a different way. Can you help me understand? I'd be happy to do that. Come and see me after the service. I can open a Bible and show you what the Bible says about receiving eternal life. So that's the first group in here. The first group are those who recognize today that you have never accepted Jesus Christ. Would you make today the day? The second group in here are those who have this gift, who hold this gift of salvation. And this day is, is for us. This is Resurrection Sunday. It's a day of celebration. And that's what that is. The, today is, is your day to celebrate. It's your day to remember. It's your day to rejoice. It's a day of joy. We remember what we have. We remember the cost that was paid to give it to us. We marvel at the wisdom and the mercy of God that compelled his gift of his son so that we might live. We are humbled before such mercy and grace. And we use this joy to testify of this new and this better way made possible through our submission to the promises of the resurrection. And then finally, and this is where we're going to go this evening, we position our hearts into the day that we will partake in that resurrection and that becomes our motivation for living. The motivation of the resurrection for how we live our lives. But for this morning, let us simply remember grace. Let us celebrate the resurrection. Because if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are of all men, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. He is become the firstfruits of them that slept. And now, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.